This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audio entertainment with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. When you're done with this episode, please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for a free audiobook with your free 30-day trial membership. For this episode, how could I not recommend The Monuments Men by Robert Edsel? Van Eyck's Ghent Altarpiece serves as a major part of the plot of the story. It was one of the most coveted works of art by Hitler and his henchmen. For not for these art historians and artists turned soldiers, this important work of the Renaissance would be lost forever. You may choose this title or another one of your choosing when you visit audibletrial.com forward slash the Renaissance for your free download. Welcome to the Renaissance, episode 28, Jan van Eyck, The Mystic Lamb. Welcome to the Renaissance. I'm your host, Dennis Bird. In this episode, we'll look at the life and works of one of the most important figures of the Northern Renaissance, Jan van Eyck. Van Eyck will take this new medium of oil paint, first utilized by Roger van der Weyden and Robert Campen, and push it in new directions. His work will have a tremendous influence on Northern Europe as well as Italy. During World War II, his work the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb, also known as the Ghent Altarpiece, will play a major role in Hitler's plan, Führer Museum. The result would be one of the greatest art thefts in history and a race across Europe to recover it. Let's begin with what we know about Van Eyck's early life. Like many of the early Northern Renaissance artists, we have very little documentation for their life and training. We have no documentation for the date of his birth or even the town. Scholar's best guess is sometime between 1395 and 1380. This is based on two pieces of evidence, a payment to the master painter Jan at The Hague between 1422 and 1424, and a self-portrait that's now in the National Gallery of London, dated 1433. Van Eyck was the court painter for John of Bavaria in The Hague in 1422 and this suggests that he was already a master artist with his own apprentices. Therefore, he could not have been born any later than 1395, and still have completed his training. The self-portrait from 1433 shows a mature man, more likely in his 50s, placing his date closer to 1380. As far as the location of his birth, we have very little to go on, except for a few hints from his name and his family. Many scholars believe he was born in Mycyke, then part of Liege. His name means from Ike, using an older spelling. This is further bolstered by the fact that he used a Moslem dialect when writing his notes, 
on a preparatory drawing for the portrait of the Cardinal Niccolo Albergati. As far as his training, it can be assumed that he was apprenticed with a master artist somewhere, where he would learn to draw and paint, but when, or to whom, we haven't a clue. We don't even have an educated guess. He just appears to us as a master artist in the court of John III at The Hague. He does seem to be well-educated. He could read Latin, as well as Greek, and write in his own language. Van Eyck's first appointment to a court position was under John III, the Duke of Bavaria-Straussing. John III started his career as the Bishop of Liege at 15. John soon turned into a tyrant and clashed with the nobles and the church leaders of Liege. The people of Liege revolted against his rule as bishop, and he then turned to his sister and brother-in-law, the Duke of Burgundy. The rebelling citizens of Liege were defeated in 1408, and Liege was placed under the control of Burgundy. John would then continue with numerous executions after his restoration to the bishopric. Being the youngest son of Albert of Bavaria, he was expected to join the clergy, hence his installment as bishop. However, when his brother, William II of Bavaria, died, John renounced his holy orders and laid claim to his brother's title. He would then wage war against his own niece. John allied himself with the new Duke of Burgundy, Philip the Good. Together, they would repulse the forces of his niece and her husband, John of Brabant. Unable to regain control of Holland, the Bavarian holdings were ultimately split between the Dukes of Bavaria, with the largest portion becoming Bavaria-Munich, and the Low Countries ruled by John III. John's niece, Jacqueline, would eventually have her marriage with John Brabant annulled in 1422. She would leave Holland for England and marry the Duke of Gloucester. We have only a couple of brief mentions of Jan van Eyck between 1422 and 1424 in the court of John. These were in the forms of payments to van Eyck. John III would be poisoned the following year, in 1425, leaving van Eyck without a patron. He would then travel to Bruges, where he would become the court painter of Philip the Good. John would briefly be succeeded by his niece Jacqueline, but she would never exercise any real authority over Holland. She would cede control over Holland to Philip the Good of Burgundy, though she was allowed to retain her titles. John's lands in Luxembourg would go to Elizabeth of Luxembourg, who would eventually cede her lands to the Holy Roman Empire thus bringing Luxembourg under the sway of the Austro-Hungarian emperors for the next 400 years. Let's introduce Duke Philip of Burgundy, Van Eyck's new patron in Bruges. Philip was a member of the Valois family, the same family who provided the kings of France at the time. It could be argued, however, that Philip exercised a great deal more power than the king of France, despite being considered part of the lesser branch of the family. Philip would ally himself with England against the King of France after accusing his brother-in-law, the Dauphin, of assassinating his father in 1420. Philip's army would play a pivotal role in the infamous execution of Joan of Arc. His troops captured her and then turned her over to the English. They then orchestrated a show trial and found her guilty of heresy in 1430. She was then burned at the stake. This alliance with England, however, would not last. As Philip wished to be ranked among the Dukes of France and recognized by Charles, the King of France, in 1435. 
Throughout this time, Jan van Eyck was employed as the court painter for the Duke. What does it mean to be the court painter exactly? We have some hints of it with Leonardo, but this is a much different model than the patronage we see in Italy. Van Eyck would draw a salary rather than a commission per piece. As the official court painter, he was barred from selling his work on the open market by the rules of the Guild of St. Luke. Any private commissions were through his connections at court. His position at court was really a very modest one. Painters were on the same level as the court seamstress, or the grocer who goes to market for vegetables. Despite this, Van Eyck was able to purchase a stone house in Bruges in 1432, just seven years after entering the service of the Duke. Van Eyck would also serve in a diplomatic capacity, and it's noted that he attended the Feast of St. Luke in Tournai in 1427. As I previously mentioned, Robert Campen and Roger van der Weyden were both present. So did Van Eyck go around painting portraits at court all the time? Well, no, not exactly. He would paint some portraits, as we will examine, but much of his work at court revolved around festivities. Van Eyck would likely design the costumes and spectacles that entertained the nobles, such as banquets and tableau vivants. He would also design the tapestries and the interiors of the ducal residence. He might even decorate or remodel the duke's homes. Small easel paintings, the kind we often think of with Flemish and Dutch artists of the day, was not something that was highly valued at court. Even though Van Eyck was experimenting with this new medium and making amazing works with it, few at court would appreciate his efforts. Van Eyck might occasionally have painted panels for the Duke, but as with the Ghent altarpiece, it was more likely wealthy nobles or clergymen outside of court who would employ Van Eyck as a panel painter. The Ghent altarpiece, his most famous work, was probably completed with his brother Hubert and commissioned by a wealthy merchant and mayor of Ghent, Jodokos Vij. The Ghent altarpiece, also known as the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb, is a complex work with 12 panels. This piece represents the only known work of Hubert van Eyck. Art historians believe the design and the composition is the work of Hubert, begun sometime in the early 1420s. Whether Jan was involved in the project from the beginning is unclear, but upon his brother's death he would take it over in 1426. There is no discernible distinction between the hand of Hubert and that of Jan, and we have no idea how much of the work beyond the design Hubert actually completed. We are left to believe that much of what we see is in fact the hand of Jan van Eyck, who completed the painting to his brother's specifications. On the frame that once surrounded the Ghent altarpiece, Van Eyck left an inscription referring to his brother, Hubert, as the great artist and himself as the lesser one. The Ghent altarpiece is a mixed-media work. As we noted in the last episode, artists first employed oil paints as a glaze over egg tempera. So the lower levels of the panels are tempera, and the final layers are completed in oil, allowing for transparent shadows and translucent flesh. It was finally completed in 1432 when it was installed in the Cathedral of St. Bavo. The central panel depicts the Lamb of God on an altar, with a dove representing the Holy Spirit descending from above. The Lamb is being adored by the angels, the saints, the martyrs, and the Jewish prophets. 
The three registers above the mystic lamb contain God the Father, or perhaps it's meant to be Christ in majesty, in the central register. He is flanked by the Virgin Mary and John the Baptist. The Almighty, the central figure in the middle, wears priestly vestments and holds his hand in the sign of blessing. On the throne are carvings of a vine and pelicans, all symbols of the blood shed by Christ on the cross. Mary wears a crown adorned with flowers and stars. Mary is often shown with a crown of stars, an allusion both to Revelation and the wise men from the Gospel of St. Matthew. John wears the animal skins he's most associated with, and he utters the phrase, Eke Agnes Dei, Behold the Lamb of God. If you're familiar with the Catholic Mass, these are the words spoken during the consecration of the bread and wine. On the outermost panels, we see the fully nude Adam and Eve, representing the fall of man, and therefore necessitating the incarnation and the crucifixion of Jesus. When this piece was unveiled, it was like a bolt of lightning hit the people of Northern Europe. No one had seen anything like it. The Van Eyck brothers had dispensed with the flatness so common to church altarpieces, nor had they idealized like the classical Greeks and Romans. The figures were painted in such detail, and such an illusion of three dimensions, they seemed as if they were alive. Everything painted by Van Eyck was painted from observation, using Dutch and Flemish models. This work rivaled that of Italy and ushered in a uniquely northern interpretation of the Renaissance. The painting would barely survive the Protestant Reformation, as overzealous reformers sought to cleanse the churches of their Catholic iconography. No doubt, this is what happened to many of Van Eyck's missing works. During this period, the ornate frame carved for the piece was destroyed, as well as the original hinges to the altarpiece. Parts of the panels still bear some fire damage from attempts to destroy them. The altarpiece would be stolen by German troops during World War I, but returned with the end of hostilities. In 1934, two of the panels were stolen, the Judges and John the Baptist. John the Baptist was returned, but the panel for the Judges is still missing to this day. What you see now, if you visit the altarpiece, is a copy of the panel made by a Belgian art restorer. All of this makes the Ghent altarpiece one of the most coveted and most stolen art pieces in history. The most famous theft of the altarpiece would come during the height of World War II. Hitler and Goering, commander-in-chief of the German Air Force, both had an interest in collecting art. Hitler's plan was to steal art from all over Europe to be placed in a museum dedicated to himself, known as the Führer Museum. He had a special interest in Germanic works, Jan van Eyck being one of his favorites. Goering was in charge of this operation in the occupied countries of the Netherlands, Belgium, and France. The Nazis stole thousands of works of art and destroyed numerous others. One of their main targets was the Ghent altarpiece. At the outbreak of war, the Belgians decided to send the altarpiece to the Vatican for safekeeping. But when Italy entered the war as an ally of Germany, the altarpiece ended up in Pau, near the French and Spanish border. It was agreed that the altarpiece would remain there, but in 1942, Hitler ordered the altarpiece to be seized and brought to Germany and held for the Führer Museum. After the bombing of Monte Cassino, 
the monastery established by St. Benedict, a group of artists and art historians were recruited by the Allies to help protect precious works of art and architecture from the ravages of war where possible. After Normandy, their mission expanded to include hunting down art looted by the Nazis and returning it to their home. All of this is detailed in The Monuments Men by Robert Etzel, today's audible recommendation. So that's a brief synopsis of the theft and The Monuments Men. The location of the Ghent altarpiece remained a mystery throughout much of the war, but following the clues left by the Nazis and the work by Rose Vallon in Paris, the Monuments Men Division were able to track down much of the stolen work at the castle of Neuschwanstein. However, the altarpiece still remained missing. Clues from Neuschwanstein in Bavaria led the Allies to the salt mines of Altuisi. Many of the most important works of art were moved there after the Allied air raids threatened the castle. In the mines, the Ghent altarpiece, along with Michelangelo's Bruges Madonna, were recovered and returned to their home countries. Today, the Ghent altarpiece resides in the church where it was commissioned, St. Bavo. Other than the Ghent altarpiece, Van Eyck is best known for his painting of the Arnofini wedding in 1434. Unlike the Ghent altarpiece, the Arnofini wedding was painted completely in oil and on an oak panel. The interpretations of this double portrait are many and varied. Some art historians believe it may have been a self-portrait, due in large part to the large signature in the center of the painting. Van Eyck was one of the few artists of the day who routinely signed his work. Even with this habit, his signature is rather large and in your face. Craig Harbinson argues that it was not intended to mean it was a self-portrait, but rather draw attention to the artist as the creator, and that you are entering his world. It's an unusual portrait for other reasons as well. The Arnolfini wedding is the only one of its day that depicts ordinary people in a contemporary setting, perhaps the first genre painting. In the painting, we see a man and a woman staring out at the viewer without acknowledging the presence of anyone in the room. However, the reaction of the dog indicates someone has entered, and we see two men in the mirror behind the bride and the groom. The mirror is surrounded by scenes of the Passion of Christ and may represent the all-seeing eye of God. The groom is dressed simply, but it's evident that he is still wealthy. His shoes are removed to indicate a holy space. His hand is joined with the brides to symbolize their union. Between them is a dog, possibly representing fidelity. The bride is not pregnant, as many assume. However, she pulls her dress up, giving her the appearance of a bulge indicating her desire for children. Van Eyck also placed her near the bed, indicating their desire for children and her role in marriage. The painting is packed full of symbolism, and I'm just barely scratching the surface, but this gives you an idea. How about the patron? Some have thought it was a self-portrait, so what evidence do we have for a patron? Well, the evidence for a patron is actually pretty good. Arnolfini was an Italian merchant living in Bruges. Interestingly, there were two members of the Arnolfini family in Bruges, both merchants, both named Giovanni, Giovanni di Arrigo and Giovanni di Niccolo. However, neither man had a wife in 1434. For centuries, historians believed the painting depicted Giovanni di Arrigo, 
But in the 20th century, a historian discovered that he did not marry until 13 years later, and it was six years after Van Eyck died. Giovanni di Nicola was also unmarried at the time, but he did have a wife in 1433. She died in childbirth the year before the portrait was commissioned. So, the theory goes, this is a partial posthumous portrait of Giovanni di Nicola and his deceased wife. We have a portrait of Giovanni, also painted Van Eyck, and it bears a striking resemblance to the Arnolfini wedding portrait. To further bolster this theory, the candle above the groom is lit, while the one above the bride is extinguished, possibly indicating her death. If this is in fact the case, it would make this a most unusual piece indeed. This painting would pass through various courtiers and ultimately be given to Margaret of Austria, the Habsburg regent. It was then given to her niece, Mary of Hungary, who then went to live in Spain in 1566. There it would reside with the royal court until the Bonapartist invasion. Napoleon's brother, King Joseph, loaded up any portable treasure from the Spanish royal residences and attempted to make his escape back to France. The British, however, would cut him off at the Battle of Vittoria in 1813. And in all likelihood, this is where a Scottish officer, James Hay, took possession of the piece. It returned to Britain with Colonel Hay, and he eventually offered it to the Prince Regent. The Prince Regent returned the piece to Hay in 1818. It would then disappear sometime in 1828, after Hay gave it to a friend for safekeeping. It would not show up again until 1841, when it went on display publicly. The newly formed National Gallery would purchase the painting the following year in 1842. It is still on display at the National Gallery of London today. At his death in 1441, Van Eyck would have a tremendous influence on both Northern and Italian Renaissance artists. He would become synonymous with the new medium of oil painting, so much so that Vasari would credit him with its invention. His achievements would reach Florence and Venice. Many of his techniques would be adopted by the artists of Venice and then spread throughout the rest of Italy. Venice shared many similarities with the Dutch and Flemish trading ports. Both were seafaring and trading people, and both cities were situated in damp, wet environments. The techniques developed by Campen and perfected by Van Eyck would work well in Venice's humid climate. Join me next time as we examine the nightmarish worlds of Hieronymus Bosch and Peter Bruegel the Younger. You've been listening to the Renaissance Podcast, and I'm your host, Dennis Bird. Thank you for listening. Music